So Emma, as we're calling you, thank you for joining me on Broadview. Thank you so much for having me. Can we start? Um, can we start with your kind of origin story before your transition? A little bit about your childhood and how you how you were gendered, <laughs> how you expressed gender in childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that if anyone tries hard enough, they can trans their childhood. I think that if you look for ways that you're different or if you look for ways to fit into a trans narrative, almost anyone can pull stuff from their childhood that that does. Um, I personally, I was adopted, which I think is a big part of, of how I ended up where I ended up. Um, having a loose sense of identity due to adoption, having a loose sense of definition of self, definition of family. Um, also the primal wound that you're always trying to heal when you're adopted. Um, that pain, if you're always looking for what is that pain and no one's really talking about what that actually is, then it can be easy for a therapist to propose what it might be. And you say, oh good, I'm so glad we found the answer to this hurt that's always been here. Um, I do think that that was a, a big piece of the trauma trifecta that uh, landed me in the situation I found myself in. Um, as a child, I was in competitive sports, uh, gymnastics specifically, which, puts a premium on uh, girls' bodies before they go through puberty. There's a desire to delay puberty for the sake of muscle mass, for the sake of ease of movement, for the sake of, um, I, honestly, not complicating things is kind of how it felt to me. Um, so I think the, the pressure to not go through puberty that was installed in me through gymnastics may have also been a factor that coupled with being taught that the desired body is a strong one um, in the male sense, not the female sense, because we know that women are strong in ways men are not. Um, but they they prided muscle, they prided um, kind of, you know, things that are incompatible with female puberty. And um, going back even further, as, as a preschooler, I didn't not feel like I fit in, but I was the only, I was one of the girls that would play with the boys in general, was just always welcome with the boys. I, um, that did not make me a boy, that did not make me actually a boy, but I do remember playing on their pirate ship and, you know, being more interested in, more interested in that than, I don't know, it was just phys physical play, right? Um, and then I was a bit of a tomboy for a period of time between maybe like, I don't know, five and whenever puberty started. I remember the, vividly the very first time I had an arm wrestling competition with my friend who was a boy. And it must have been like right before puberty because we were all still very unaware of our like role to each other. There was none of that weirdness boy girl stuff going on yet. But I remember losing the arm wrestling competition just because he had started to get the strength that comes with boys developing and being devastated, just like absolutely devastated coming to realize time and time again, my, my place in, in relation to, um, in relation to men or, you know, the default human as we, as we see them. Um, 
And then I had a pretty typical middle school. Middle school was was hard. It was around the time when I stopped doing gymnastics um, due to some injuries. And I started going through puberty and I hated it. And I developed a, well, I'd already had an eating disorder. I don't think I ever had normal, normal eating habits or normal relationship to my body. Um, I also did figure skating and ballet, you know, all of the, all of the things you can, you can do to a young woman to feel like she has to stay thin. Um, and as pretty much like as soon as I got my period, I was like, I, I hate this. I'm not about this. Um, and I stopped eating pretty much entirely. I lost a bunch of weight, um, got praised for it, of course, because our society is really sick. Um, and it went away for a while. Um, I, I don't think much of my middle school or high school years have to do with gender. I am bisexual. I always have been. I never felt any kind of way about it, though. I was never ashamed of it. I was never, um, you know, never, never wished to not be attracted to women. Um, I've got my first girlfriend in middle school. My parents didn't react great to that. I don't think they knew how to react to it. Um, not to not to discredit them. They never acted out of hate or out of um, phobia, but they didn't know what to do with that. They knew how to keep me away from boys. They didn't know how to keep me away from, from other girls. Um, so there was a little bit of weirdness there. And I do know that part of my uh, desire to, I know that part of my desire to transition had to do with not wanting my mom to be able to control me the way that mothers sometimes control daughters. Um, I know that there's there's heavy stuff there and I'm working, I'm working through my, my childhood trauma with my adoptive parents, uh, in general. Um, I love them and they love me, but we didn't always understand each other. So that's kind of the root of, of that hurt. Um, what was the reaction to bisexuality outside of your family, in your community, in your school? Um, I will, I went to an all girls school, so that affected it one way and another, you know, it made it a little bit, I wouldn't say I even experienced necessarily any homophobia from my classmates. They didn't really see me as a threat. It was never, I, I know some, for some girls who are bisexual or lesbian, they do go through that. And I really, you know, obviously really feel for them in that struggle, but I didn't have it probably because I've always been a very feminine presenting person. Like I've always been just, uh, um, drawn towards pretty clothes and, uh, no matter what I tried to do, I can't really get, you know, get rid of that femininity. I could never be read as a straight male when I was read as male. I, everyone always thought I was gay. Um, but I mean, there's, there was messaging, like one, one does internalize the messaging. Um, I think the boys were more of an issue for me. It wasn't the bisexuality so much as it was I went through two really traumatic um, relationships with men when I was in middle, late middle school, early high school. Um, 
one of which was extremely traumatic and he was older and he was fairly actively grooming me um, from eighth grade on to to feel safe with him. There's some stuff that happened in that relationship I'm not going to talk about, but he he developed almost like an older brother relationship with me and then pulled the rug out from under me as he started like putting pressure on me to be sexual with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really messed me up by convincing me that's what love was. So, you know, there's some really deep sexual trauma um, in my developmental years. And then I dated a second boy who reminded me of the first one because that pattern was already established. Uh, so that's another trauma, you know, got the eating disorder, you've got the sexual trauma, you've got the adoption. Those are all things that a therapist probably should have looked at as reasons to um, not transition a 19 year old girl. So how did you learn about transitioning and, and, and how did you come to decide that that it's something you should do? Um, all right. So I was in college. I was a 19 year old, uh, in college and I had just gone through my very, my first adult relationship with a a woman and it had gone terribly. Um, We had, we didn't have the healthiest relationship and I was mourning the loss of that. And I shaved my head kind of like in grief. And I um, wasn't eating because, you know, when things in my life got hard, I, I just stopped eating as like a pattern forever. Um, and I was wearing all of her clothes that she had left and she was butch and like they were all boys clothes. And I was dealing with the weight of being a 19 year old woman in the world or realizing what that meant for the first time. Um, outside of the protection of an all girls school where I could just be a person outside of the protection of childhood where I could just be a person. I didn't have brothers, so I never had that constant um, patriarchal uh, comparison growing up. And uh, I told my therapist I didn't want to be a woman because I don't really know many people who do want to be treated like a woman, um, which is very different from, you know, being female. Like, uh, so I basically... Uh, that you got through the college or how yes you yeah this is a therapist I was seeing through school who I mean I could analyze her I think she wanted to be a gender therapist but was a, a college counseling therapist and like I think she wasn't particularly happy with that um and yeah so in college I found I, I basically said to my therapist I don't want to be a woman and she was like we can fix that um and so That's I started watching you? you you said I'm I not don't sure if those were the, I'm not sure if those were the exact words she said but that was the energy and that was the it was met it was affirmed it was affirmed strongly both from that therapist and from my peers when they encouraged uh exploration that what that looks like to me at the time and like 
2000, I don't know, the 2000 teens was going online and looking at what that life, life looks like. But the tricky thing about the internet, I feel like, I feel like going online and seeking out if transition is right for you will almost always give you an affirmative answer. Um, there's a lot of glamorized half-truths about transition out there. Um, there, You see the success stories that are the top 1% of trans people and they don't share the parts that aren't working publicly. It wasn't until years later when I was in phalloplasty groups, for example, where I would see the, the person who'd had surgery posting on YouTube about how great their life was and about how happy they were they had surgery and about all the updates so that they could get all that um, circuitous affirmation from their followers. But then in the private group saying things like, I'm super suicidal and um, this is my sixth revision and I'm waiting for another one. I can't stand, I can't stand up to pee. There's fistulas, there's all kinds of complications. And that's pretty standard. I'm in, I wasn't, or I guess I still am in like, I don't know, five or six different groups where that's just the story. One of the guys who was leading the group died. Like one of the groups is just forever frozen in time because the, the guy died. Um, and they won't give us details on like, and it's not my business really, but like, you know, uh, so I went online and I, you know, I was, I was depressed. Oh, I was also not sober at this time, which I think I should clarify too. Um, I have a history of issues with substances. Um, part of it was from that guy that was abusive. He intentionally got me hooked on some uh, substances. But the point is that when I signed my informed consent papers, I wasn't sober. I hadn't put together two sober days in at least four three years at that point, I can firmly say. And the fact that that wasn't a red flag is really concerning. If someone can't consent to sex when they're inebriated, how can you consent to, you know, hormones when you're not thinking clearly? Um, I was also disassociated too, which may or may not have been, it, I know it was more than just the drugs. I was disassociated in a way that um, what is that should have been diagnosed. Sorry, what do you mean by um, associated? When the room feels like it's caving in all the time, all day, every day, and you have tunnel vision and you can't remember what you said five minutes ago and you can't remember what year it is and you don't know where you are. Um, you feel like you're floating outside your body. There were it, it was a trauma response. I'm and that should have been that should have been dealt with and diagnosed accurately. Um, I don't think anyone that spoke to me at that time would say I was there. Um, I have a really hard time imagining a doctor. I didn't meet the eyes of my surgeon who cut my breasts off once. I never looked him in the face. Hmm. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Some days are harder than others. Today's yeah. been today's been a hard one. I uh, woke up to a, a that's a whole other topic. But the way that the world is receiving detransitioners right now is is vile. Um, I woke up to someone sending me a response video to a TikTok of someone of a of a young 
trans guy um, saying that we should just kill all detransitioners. Mm. And I'm looking at these girls and like, I want to be mad. You'd think that one, like my initial response was like, fuck you. Like you're like, just, just leave it at that. Just like, fuck you. Just like rage. But then I sat back, like I sat down I thought about it and I was like, we trans, most of the people saying this are between the ages of 14 and I don't think I've seen one older than 19. Um, these are teenage girls still like, I didn't know I'd made a mistake until six years. I didn't know I'd made a mistake till my brain fully developed. I didn't know I'd made a mistake till I was sober. I didn't know I'd made a mistake till I realized that the world was going on without me. You know, I, you, you live a life when you're that age, everything is about self. Your, your, your identity is formed around just yourself. It's self-centered, but when you get a little bit older, your identity has to do with relationship to others, with relationship to community, with relationship to your society that you're in. And if you chose to do something that self-oriented at that age, you don't get to move on with your peers. It is a very rare person who's made those choices that gets to move on with their lives normally. Um, and I want to be clear that I am not saying that I'm one of those trans people that detransitioned because being trans is hard mm -hmm. I just want to fully paint the picture of what it lives of what it's like to live as a transitioned person from someone who no longer feels the need to protect that narrative mm -hmm. can, can we go back a little bit to did you not consider this until the therapist suggested it to you and then you went online and took the tests and said oh yeah that's me I mean, was it in the air around you? To be honest, I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. I was that disassociated that I could not tell you where I found this out. I think I do. I do remember that holiday season going home to my family and being like, I'm non-binary. And then my aunt challenging me and being like, what does that mean? And me being like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I literally, I was just, a teen I was a dumb teenager. Like, I don't know how to. It, it takes a lot of, by the way, this whole process has taken a lot of humility. Um, luckily, it was necessary because it came to, it came to a head where I, I, I could either keep living in that delusion or humble myself severely and start talking about this stuff. Um, so, you know, I'm not proud of any of this stuff and some of it's hard to talk about. Uh, but yeah, I was a dumb, very easily influenced teenager because I had that, that pain, that that hole, you know, from day one. And it was, very, <sighs> and it was easily filled by, uh, I've got a, I've got a really old dog here yeah, and she doesn't breathe well. So that sound that that's her coughing. Um, I'm sorry, but I know that. I, so I went to, I went to a very liberal, um, liberal school and the gender ideology was in the air. Ironically, I actually was taking classes at Brown in queer theory um, and had come to the opposite conclusion in one of my papers, unbeknownst to me because I was unaware of like this, this social bigger picture of radical feminism or anything like that. Gender critical theory didn't know anything about those, didn't have words to it. But I basically wrote a response paper to Butler saying, why do women always have to concede their language first? 
and my teacher, you know, I got like, I don't know, a B plus on that paper. It was like, it was an okay paper. Um, but my teacher did not engage with me on that topic. And at the time I was like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, agendas. I see what I said was apparently problematic. Um, didn't know that. But it's funny that I went through all of that when I was in a better place and like had literally had thoughts like, thank God I'm not trans earlier in my life. And then, and then, oh, oh, and also earlier in my life had a really negative experience with a trans identified male in our college coming up to all the groups of women at parties and being like, where are the lesbians? Like demanding access to women's bodies in a way that women don't do. Um, and it made me feel very uncomfortable and it made me be like, I don't want to be anywhere close to this person. Um, and I had all those experiences and yet I still was able to get got. I still was able to find myself in a position where I was vulnerable enough and I was online enough and I was being influenced by YouTubers primarily at the time, Tumblr primarily at the time, because that was that era, um, to be like sold this better life. And so how I, did that, how did you proceed once you, dis despite, you know, all the bulwarks you'd erected against these ideas earlier, then somehow you get to the point where this this starts to seem like salvation and a release from mm -hmm. pain. And what mm -hmm. happened from the time you decided, yes, I am properly gender dysphoric and yes, I'm trans. H how did the medicalization happen? Well, the medicalization happened really fast. I don't remember getting on hormones. I know it didn't, it wasn't hard. I walked into an endocrinologist office with a letter and got on them. The letter, like who gave you the letter? I think it was the therapist from college, I think. But I also know that you can contact Planned Parenthood and say, I need a letter and they will produce one for you. Hmm. And I know that because I needed one going the opposite direction. And that was when I became privy to that being their system. Like uh, you can talk about stay. that after. I want to hear more about that. Okay. Uh, so you got a letter, you got hormones. Yep. Very quickly got hormones. Do you remember what that experience was like physically and psychologically to go on hormones? Well, they're a stimulant. So I felt better initially because it's a stimulant. I also had hope that I was doing the right thing and changing my life for the better. And that hope really doubly affirmed that I was doing the right thing. So, you know, I came to realize that that later on that that hope is is um, like unfounded in reality. You're hoping you can become something you're not, but you're not realizing that you you can't um, ever become that other thing. So I think that's where a lot of the euphoria, so-called euphoria and and positive outcomes come from in the first one, two, three years of transition. It's like this, oh my gosh, I'm becoming, I'm becoming this thing I want to be. I'm leaving behind everything I've got. I'm, I'm remaking myself. It's a salvation. It's a rebirth. Um, and then that fades away as you realize, okay, well, I've got hormones. People on the street perceive me as male. Um, people in private settings perceive me as male if they're not aware, if they're not queer literate. You know, because once they are there, they see you as um, they can if they can see trans, they can see you. Mm -hmm. And that's mm. a whole other thing. Queer literate. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Um, so I avoided a lot of queer spaces in that time because I didn't want to be associated. Um, and I avoided well, you didn't want to of... be you didn't want to be read as trans. You wanted to be read as male. Mm -hmm. Yep. Why was that? Which is. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's really a big part of why it all came apart for me. I think I think a lot of people who just want to look male. Transitions a, fi a fine thing for them because their end goal I think a patient if their end goal is to appear more male or appear more masculine then transition fits that if your end goal is to become a man or be a man you're never going to be happy because you can't get there you know you're gonna you get to the point where you're getting red as male and it's a certain level of comfort maybe for you especially if you're hiding from abuse and then you get to a point where you're looking at phalloplasty and you're like, wait, these are really the options? Like, how are these the options? What are the success rates? You ask insurance with the success rates and they give you like an absurd number, like 80% success or some bullshit like that. And then you go into the actual doctor's office or you do your research by sticking around phalloplasty groups long enough and you see that the success rate is like negligent. It is like not... I guess they're considering a success if you don't die. Like, I don't know what the success is that they're saying they're getting because they're they're not. Um, well, it's they an interesting even... question. How do you measure success when it's not a medical, pro when it's a medical intervention for a psychological problem? I suppose they measure it with satisfaction or psychological well-being, but I'm not sure how much long-term research they have about that. Or if they're even measuring that in right. their in their research, you know, you can't represent data that you don't take in research. Oh, uh, that's my other dog. <laughs> um, yeah. So, hi. I forgot where I was with that, but um. So you so so you so you decided this was the path. You went on the hormones. I guess, how did you get to the surgery? Honestly, in my, I wanted to stop binding because I had double D breasts that were not binding hurt. I also historically have been an athlete and I liked working out. I wanted freedom from binding. Six months after testosterone, I made an appointment, got seen by a doctor and got them cut off. And insurance, you were on your your school insurance or? I was on my, my dad's insurance at the time, but I did it out of pocket. Oh. And did it, did your, were your parents involved at all? Um, yeah, they drove me to the appointments. Do you know how they felt about, about your progression through this medical experience? Um, my mom, at one point, when she was driving me to surgery the morning of, goes, you don't have to do this. And my response was, yeah, I do. And I know all the thoughts that were going through my mind right then. And it was, yeah, I do. I've told people I'm going to. Yeah, I do. That's the path you take when you're trans. Yeah, I do. I want to become a man. Yeah, I do. Men don't have breasts. Like, I also, there's, there's also a component there that I don't know if I... I'm autistic. I don't know if my 
black and white thinking was youth or autism or trauma, but I was very, very prone to black and white thought as a young person. Um, it's something that I've gone through a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and grown up, you know, uh, after 25, your brain finishes and I felt it and could suddenly see gray and hold two truths simultaneously and, you know, all of those things. Um, but my very black and white thinking was like, oh, I flipped a switch to trans. Now this is what we do. You know, we do what we do. We do, we're on that conveyor belt. And we can't get off of it. And it was like that. I, I, there were glimmers of like, oh, well, I don't even want to say there was glimmers of, oh, I might've made a mistake because there really wasn't this, the social benefits of transitioning outweighed anything that I felt like I was losing or any uncertainty I had. Um, both in how I was treated better when I was perceived male and also the immediate affirmation of my of my peers when I was young being like oh my god you're so brave for you know transitioning um I thought I was a success success story though um I did not think I would detransition ever in life I thought I had made the right choice I thought that it was who I was I thought it was innate I believed that my brain was different um like a different gender than my body um I even had a therapist at one point tell me that I was likely intersex without ever having looked at me or ever having um, done talked to a doctor who had looked at me, which I think now is severely negligent. Um, but the therapists believe the stuff that they tell you. Any questioning I had was was cut short by therapists affirming affirming the most delusional stuff, by the way, like um, affirming that transsexuality is a form of intersex, mm -hmm. affirming that just because your brain is different from your body, that makes you intersex. But then you have to believe that the brain is where the gender is stored, right? And that's not real. <laughs> um, it was a relief when I finally came out of the delusion, it was scary and it was terrifying. And I didn't think I was going to be able to, to do it, to stop everything, but it was, it was a relief to have the radical acceptance of my, my, my body and myself the way I hadn't had when I was 19. Well, how did that happen? What changed? You said initially you would be counted as a success story. You were yep. happy with your I had therapists tell me that. Yeah. I had therapists literally tell me that I had, peers at a psych at a psych ward I was in um tell me like oh I know all these trans people that are so fucked up but you're fine like that's awesome and I was like well we are in a psych ward right now like maybe evaluate that but um hmm. people you know people just thought I was really even even keeled and like very normal uh I worked in um like facilities management, like a, you know, normal guy job. I worked in a male dominated industry for my professional uh, realm, which is something that I can't really talk about on here because you would be able to find me. Mm -hmm. um, and I just blended in pretty okay. You know, I was never really flamboyant or queer in any way. I never like did the whole wearing, I, I wore what you're 
society says you're supposed to wear as a man like um did you like wearing those clothes i felt safe it's certainly easier it's certainly easier to dress yourself as a guy um because there's less you don't have to think about how you're being perceived as much you know it's pretty simple you dress for function but you don't have to like Think about how you have to look a certain amount of nice so that you're perceived well as a female, but like you still need your clothes to function for the very physical labor job you're doing. But you also, you know, there's so much that goes into being a woman successfully in the world, um, which has been another heartbreak of mine that I'm having to relearn how to be, how to be a woman. Um, And when I say that, I don't mean how to put on the skin of a woman and walk around pretending I am one and and catering to stereotypes. I mean that I forgot to protect myself. I forgot to protect myself for the first, for the first, in the first year after detransitioning, I was sexually assaulted twice. Um, Once was date rape because I forgot that you have to be so much more careful as a female. Um, I was, I don't know, harassed at work. I lost a few jobs, um, like professional connection jobs, just because they didn't want to do business with a woman. I um, became acutely aware of my my position in society um, and that it was subservient and that it was violent or the recipient of violence and that it was um, less monetary, like the wage gap is real, that's all I'm gonna say. Having done business as a male and having had all the doors open to me and having been able to sustain myself even as a beginner in my field uh, for a certain time period and then trying to do that business uh, interfacing as a woman, I, I make a third of the amount of money I did uh, as a male. Is there anything you learned to bring with you you know, from living as a man that any way of being that can be adopted and adapted? I think that's a daily struggle I'm working on. I am very jaded and I will admit that I'm very jaded. Um, I wasn't jaded when I first detransitioned. I was running around wearing whatever I wanted to wear, going, oh my God, I'm so glad I get to be a woman. Like, you know, just a sense of relief, whatever. Um, And then the way I was treated was what made me jaded over the last couple of years. Um, I would say that what what I think I learned the most is it is as bad as you think it is behind closed doors with men. Um... That being said, I'm much more I'm much more compassionate towards the struggles that men have. I'm much more compassionate toward I, I know instances and I, I'm scared to even verbalize them because we don't need more of more of that in I don't know that we don't need more of that in writing, but like how, how am I trying to verbalize this? I have a compassion for the loneliness men get a lot less love, get touched a lot less. A lot of them are touch starved. Um, I have compassion for the self-imposed hierarchy that they all have to 
duke it out over to survive um, and how hard that can be. I understand the motivations of a lot of them now in a way that I did not before. Does it benefit me now? I don't think so. I don't think there's much that I can learn from. I know who to avoid though. Like maybe that's, maybe that's a way I can say like, that's helpful. I know who to avoid. I also know that there's no right way to be a woman. If they want to hate you, they're going to hate you. Whether you dress slutty or dress like a nun, um, it has nothing to do with that. Hmm. So, can we go back to how you came to detransition? Because you were appeared to be happy. People said you were happy. Then what happened? I just had this realization that you couldn't become a man. Like you could never change your sex. I realized I was chasing something that was un unachievable. Um, I also before before that realization was having heart problems. Uh -huh. um, because of the testosterone, my hair was falling out. I was physically kind of falling apart. Um, and then I, so because of all of those health issues, I went off of testosterone. Um, and when I went off, that's when the, the radical realization hit me. That was when I was like, oh, wow. If I had just accepted myself before, um, I could have saved myself all of this pain I could have saved myself this like attempt at something that I can't be um and then what was the process what was the process of leaving that identity behind and what was the process physically for you uh, yeah, so physically, I am a wreck. Uh, testosterone has a lot of side effects that they don't tell you about. Um, I also want to clarify that my hair was falling out because it was sick. And I went to a, a barber at one point that told me I looked like I had, quote, chemo hair. Um, it wasn't male pattern baldness inherited by a gene from my mother's father's side. Like that's not how it works when women take testosterone. How it works is there's DHT and it makes your hair fall out. Like it's a one-to-one, -one. it's not genetic. It's also, um, I bring this up too, because right now in the, in the TikTok realm and in the culture sphere, people are criticizing a 20 year old girl who went on testosterone at 15 lost all her hair. She's been one of the most outspoken detransitioners of, of the week. Um, and people are saying a lot of misinformation, you know, about it being genetic, about, about balding, being a male, a male thing. It's literally just if a female takes testosterone, you lose your hair. That's it. It can also be an indicator that you're ill. You know, it can, it can indicate your health or your hormone activity. That's why when, when women get pregnant, their hair texture changes, you know, similar to that. Sometimes not everybody also, by the way, not everybody, but. Um, oh, and not everybody and I would, I would, loses their hair, right? Not everybody on testosterone loses their hair. Some, some. Do you know, do you know anyone over 10 years who still has their hair? I'm trying to think of the trans men I know or have watched and how many have hair. And I don't know, but I've <laughs> certainly. I'm just curious now. Question. Yeah. I I'm think just curious now how many. Hair? 
who aren't balding. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I want to look into it too, because I can't really name anyone that I know who has been on it more than 10 years, who has hair, like a full head of hair. Like, I, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if people listen to this, if they write to us <laughs> and tell us, I, I mean, the people well, I'm thinking of who I know personally are all three of them are bald but that's a very small sample size yeah so. it also you know we have this we have this trans obsession with aesthetics as well that I'm kind of trying to deprogram my brain from um things such as thinking of breasts merely as indicators of of your gender or your gender performance and not as functional organs that were designed to be a part of your body. Um, and I'm trying to articulate something right now that is, I'm distracted. Um, basically, my experience having my breasts cut off and then talking to doctors about, quote, fixing the problem, you know, how to detransition, how to fix all the things that we fucked up about my body. Um, I was talking to doctors and I became really, really aware of their focus on the aesthetic component of breasts. Psychologically, I wanted reconstruction because I wanted one fewer way to be othered going forward. I wanted one fewer scar to look at. You know, my whole body already is a scar. My voice is a scar. Like I don't need yet another way. And I, I still have and always will have the scars and the fact that these aren't breasts, these are silicone balls that were put under my muscle mm. um, to replicate the idea of a breast. And that is very distinctly different from being a breast. And I think that trans ideology tends to conflate aesthetic with reality. And we need to decouple that because it is confusing to young people who are gravitating towards the movement. That is why a young girl could think that she could become an actual man because we we codify this language. We say top surgery instead of double mastectomy. We, you know, shroud it in, in almost like a, a brand. Um, and it needs to be demystified there are a shocking number of girls in these D-trans groups asking if their breasts will grow back after top surgery. Does that sound like they got informed consent if they think that they can grow their breasts back after top surgery? To me, it doesn't. Um, and I didn't know personally that, that I wasn't gonna have nipples after my top surgery. Like they really did not clarify what a nipple graft is. It's when they take the nipple and they cut it off and they strip the back of it and they turn it into a graft. So they turn it from a nipple into a skin graft and then they graft that skin graft onto your chest. That was not adequately explained to me as a teenager when I got them cut off. It just wasn't. Like I did not know that until I was getting, I was sitting in a doctor's office asking for help and they were explaining why it would be really hard for them to reconstruct my chest versus a cancer survivor's chest because mm -hmm. it had intentionally been altered down to the graphs to, to look male in a certain way. It wasn't, yeah. So I went to three separate surgeons 
um, looking for reconstruction. One was the surgeon that did my surgery. I had no motive at the time. Now I would like to know what he does to make sure he doesn't do this again to another teenage girl. Um, I would like to know that he has more measures in place than just listening to one therapist's note. I think that's absurd, um, especially given the power trip that these therapists are on um, and the doctors for that matter. You know, they think they're God, but they're not. Um, and so I went to three different therapist offices or sorry, three different surgeons offices. One was the original surgeon. He sent me back a cheery email saying he'd be happy to charge me more money to put implants in my chest. Mm -hmm. um, the second one was a um, well-known surgeon in my hometown that I knew did trans surgeries and would be familiar with a um, with what they do when they do top surgery so he'd know what was you know what was likely there it turns out they all do them differently so they he didn't know what was there um there's a layer of skin that sometimes they cut out and sometimes they leave in and there was a big unknown if it would be there when they opened my chest up oh. um and so I, I tried to get on his wait I I talked he had a very long wait list so I kept looking for surgeons and I found another one the third surgeon that I did a consultation with and I don't remember exactly why I went with this or why I went with the second surgeon over the third surgeon but the third surgeon they helped me immensely with aesthetics when I first went off testosterone because when I first went off testosterone I looked wasted like the muscle mass starts wasting when you go off of tea um but you still have the low body fat so I lost a whole bunch of weight really fast I looked really sick my face was sunken in all of the collagen and fat that's supposed to be in certain places when you're a certain age and female weren't there. So I looked really old. Um, and I still had this like aesthetically driven, oh my God, I have to fix this image. Um, because, you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm being read as male. It was very uncomfortable. Um, so I went and I got fillers in my cheeks to try and reverse some of what had been done by the testosterone it honestly it worked like I, I but I'm not gonna upkeep that I'm not gonna do that again because I've grown a little bit and don't really want to keep fucking with my body mm -hmm. like I, I don't feel like I need to um endlessly keep messing with my parents um I think that's something that I need to leave behind in the old in the old ideology um, but they were really helpful and they had never seen someone come in for reconstruction. So I've developed actually a pretty good relationship with this surgeon's office because they had never seen a detransitioner before. Mm. I was the first and they actually ended up, uh, one of the nurses did a podcast with me oh. just trying to get the information out there. And it changed the way that they looked at, they were very responsible, by the way, when they saw me, they were like, have you lived as, as a woman for a year? Like, are you sure about this? Like they went through all of the things you're supposed to go through that I did not get the first time. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell them my story. Uh, the surgeon I ended up going with, I, I think I only, I think I chose him because he had done a reconstruction on a, on a double mastectomy before on a top surgery. 
um, which is, you know, concerning. Like, you don't want it either way, right? Like, you don't want it to not be happening at all and them to be clueless, but you also really don't want them to have already done this a hundred times. Yeah. Because we want to minimize people being in the situation. Um, Did you tell the therapist? Have you ever talked to the therapist? I could not get in contact with the therapist. I sent one... Uh, I found the first therapist and I sent her basically a, I forgive you for almost ruining my life message. Um, even though that's not totally how I feel, I felt like I needed to, I'm, I'm really, really, really struggling with how to close this chapter. I'm, I'm feeling immense grief. I'm feeling immense trauma. I have PTSD from it. And that PTSD is exacerbated by the fact that the ideology is everywhere. I'm having a very hard time getting away from it. I'm suddenly seeing a whole lot of women gravitating towards the they them component of the ideology to get away from for the same reasons I did, you know, a, a bunch of years ago. So I have to watch all these other women make the same mistake I did. Um, and I just have to wait. I just have to wait at this point because I, I can't be around it. Um, it's not fair to me you know given given everything do you think that it can work for some people or do you think this is as long as it's this population of kind of teen girls with mental health issues that it can never be appropriate well so there's two different things going on one but they but they can they can influence each other one is the medicalization and the 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 medical route and the trans route is one one path. The other thing that's going on is this like linguistic dodging of womanhood that offers the same relief as as the first path um, to some people. I never had tolerance for that one. You know, I incidentally it was the gateway drug to me transitioning medically because I did initially identify as non-binary, not even understanding what that meant. And I think most of them don't. I think most of them don't understand what that means. Um, he put that in their bio. But um, so identifying as, as identifying out of womanhood, I don't think that will bring ultimate, like that's going to be a fad that's going to die. Because what happened instead of, instead of people genuinely treating these individuals as if they are not a woman, they're just making their political stance evident. And I understand why they're doing it. Like I understand the the drive to distance yourself from being treated as a woman because it fucking sucks. Sexism is real, misogyny is real, rape is real. Like it all it all sucks. But um so I think that trend is gonna die down inevitably. But of the of those people, some of them are gonna pursue medical intervention. And I don't think that's gonna go well either. I think the perfect, I think the actual person who should be receiving transition healthcare is someone who aspires to appear as the opposite sex. Is, is like Buck Angel, for example, he speaks out consistently of being aware that he is aspiring to appear as the opposite sex. And there is a lot there that just keeps your feet rooted in reality, keeps you grounded in reality and not a delusion mm -hmm. yeah and and buck is someone who's 
very aware of biological sex and who feels like he really had a mental issue and that this was the appropriate way to address it, but he was an adult and he had many years to think about it. Um, and he's quite concerned about people like you. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you wish the therapist would have done when you came in there and said, I wish I, I wish I wasn't a woman, I wish I didn't have to be a woman. What do you think the appropriate response would have been? I think the appropriate response would have been teaching radical acceptance, teaching, you know, the, the way that a therapist would be trained to handle a delusion. If someone walked in there and was like, I'm a bird. That's an absurd example, but it was a delusion for me. And I know it is for others. And I think that whatever therapists are taught to ground people in reality would have been the best response, especially considering that if you have a patient who, for whom transition is the right move, it will, it will resolve itself. Like it will become evident that that is the necessary, the necessary last resort. Um, statistically speaking, the patient sitting in front of you probably isn't going to benefit from that. And so to immediately treat them as the rarity is, is also negligent. You know, you should be treating them as, as the average until it becomes evident that they need more. Um, so I wish she'd just helped me with acceptance. What about the surgeons? You, you mentioned, and the endocrinologist, you mentioned when mm -hmm. you went for reconstruction that they asked you these questions that the, the other ones didn't. You came with a letter, that was the requirement. So what should the requirement be? A psychological evaluation by a doctor who does not believe in affirmation therapy, by a doctor who believes that this is sometimes an appropriate treatment, but sometimes isn't. But that doesn't make the endocrinologist a bunch of money over a long period of time, does it? If you're weeding out patients actively. Hmm. And then same with surgery. I think they should have a psychological evaluation done by a third party that is non-biased at the bare minimum. They should also probably have a time period a year, two years, three years, come back in two years if you still feel this way. Mm -hmm. I remember my friend wanted a tattoo and she got the advice of draw the picture you want, put it in a drawer. I really think it was five years, come back five years later if you still want it. And she did, it's a great tattoo. I got a tattoo on a whim in Mexico that got infected and rotted off. Uh, and I, I often, I'm, I'm glad that these interventions weren't available to me when I was young, um, because I was so uncomfortable in my body and so sad that my body did not look like what I thought it was supposed to look like and so ashamed. And sometimes I think that about the rush to transition, which is, um, I, I'm not, if you hate your body. I don't think that transitioning it to the appearance of male or neither male or female will necessarily lead to loving your body. And what you're talking about, radical acceptance, is a very difficult path. Doesn't make anybody any money, except maybe you pay someone to 
lead your meditation group. I don't know, but it's, um, I, I think that if the problem is hating your body, um, and it feels intolerable, but teaching distress tolerance and radical acceptance and self love seems like a good idea and somebody may come out of all of that and think I still want to do this I want to do it for me um, but there's the rush it's the rush is doesn't give people time to digest the information and their goals um, what was it, how long was it for you how, how long were you living as a man until you detransitioned and how six long years. Have you been? six years mm -hmm. on hormones six years on hormones and how so probably closer to seven how long have you been detransitioned two years what what are your needs now what do we need to do to help detransitioners uh, I mean, very, so, so healthcare to help pick up the pieces because I currently have, um, GI issues I did not have before. I know other detransitioners do too. Um, number of us have developed new allergies to foods that we did not have prior to taking testosterone. So like rigorous endocrine um, follow-up care. I also likely have a thyroid issue now that was probably triggered by this or exacerbated by this. Not saying it wouldn't inevitably have happened anyways because it runs in my family, um, but it usually doesn't happen until later in life. It doesn't usually happen in your 20s. Um, I also had strange endocrine things happening with like my body trying to go through menopause and then not going through menopause quite. And then, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of, I, I look at um, forums for bodybuilders or women who abuse testosterone and other, you know, like doping methods, because those are the people who physically are the same to me um and you'll get honest answers from them that you won't get from the trans male forms um it's also you know a body having come off of off of those hormones too um that you're looking at so medical care physical physical medical care to pick up the pieces um some of that could also probably be like fertility care i don't know um then also mental health care that I don't know that we even have yet. Grief, how to grieve, because that is the predominant emotion that many of us feel after is grief or rage or, um, and, and most of us have PTSD too. So figuring out how to, how to treat the PTSD and the grief in terms of mental health care. Um, I would say we also need a society that is more inclusive, mm -hmm. um, which looks like not doing pronoun circles. If people need to tell you, they'll tell you. 
not bringing up this thing that traumatized us over and over and over again, and then bashing you over the head with it as if it is the morally righteous way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Not having that be the predominant culture, I look forward to that sometime in the future. Um, because it is traumatic. It is traumatizing. It is triggering. Um, I was in a classroom. My most recent uh, schooling, I went back to school after I graduated to, to get a specialty in my field. And there was an 18-year-old student there. Reminded me of me. Um, she was transitioning um, and the teacher, so the, this kid, this 18 year old student who may or may not actually decide that she's trans and transitioning is going to help her was talking about wanting top surgery. And instead of the teacher saying, Hey, you know, here's some resources that are non-biased, that are non-affirmative, whatever, to actually help you. Or instead of saying, this is not something we can talk about in class because it's not appropriate or whatever. She goes, yeah, me too. Um, and I couldn't be in that classroom. I couldn't get what I needed in that space. So how do we make spaces that are genuinely, actually, actually inclusive? Um, I don't know that we're ready for that conversation. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit people's selfish need to virtue signal to actually be inclusive because how can you virtue signal something you're not doing? Um, so, but that is a need of detransitioners, and that is a conversation that we've all been having with each other is how do we function in society as it is right now. Um, other things we need, basic legal help for how to undo all of the changes that we made. There are not forms for that. Um, no one expects you to hit edit undo on that. So we're having to refill out the gender change forms again um, and they're saying things like, check this box if you've had adequate surgery. What box do we check? You know, mm -hmm. so just a, another another legal pathway for people to undo that change is necessary. I think if we're talking not just about what we physically need, and what we mental health wise need, but also societally what we need. I wanna throw the whole thing out, but I can't. So in response to all of the people who are really losing their minds about detransitioners right now, I would like to start talking about what is detransphobia? Mm -hmm. Because there's people online telling us to kill ourselves. I am getting the mm. most hate I have ever gotten ever after speaking up for myself. And it's from other young, young people who may or may not detransition themselves in the future. So, you know, that conversation has to expand. I've been taking the approach of appealing to the quote, helpful ally um, by saying, if you care about young people with dysphoria, you will care, then, you know, you also have to care about these transitioners because we are those people. It's all, it's all one, it's all one umbrella. Um, but yeah, we definitely, I mean, you know, most of the people who have spoken out, we're a very underrepresented group of people because you have to be really strong and kind of not care what people think about you to be able to go out there and say, hey, 
I'm bearing my soul right now for the thing that hurt me the most in my life that I did trying to help myself, by the way, um, that I was encouraged to do by professionals, by the way, that I was affirmed socially by my, my peer group. Um, and it didn't work for, work out for me, uh, for whatever reason, you know, you realize it's bullshit or it's just not right for you or whatever. And you're vulnerable in that way. And then people hate you. Um, and you know, it takes a certain level of bravery and a certain level of not giving a fuck to like do it. Um, but that's why we're wildly underrepresented because it's, you know, it's not fun. Right. I mean, it really, we don't know how many detransitioners there are because most people don't have the fortitude or the will, the energy to speak up. I really, I really don't. I just don't feel like I have a choice because I don't want this to help happen to anybody else. And I'm alarmed at seeing the social trends right now. Alarmed at seeing there be, you know, everything that could have on differently for me being the mainstream. Well, I feel the same um, way. I don't, yeah. I, I, it would be great for me if I would stop doing this, but I, <laughs> I, I can't until the media starts reporting the story better. I'm stuck here. And of course, I've never been through anything like what you've been through, but I, I feel this responsibility. Um, and, and as, as a parent and as a parent watching other parents make decisions that I know they think are in the best interest of their child. And I know they're terrified and I know they're fiercely protective, both of their children and of of themselves, of, of what they've done. And that's why they're not open to hearing from me or you, or <laughs> many other people trying to speak up. So I guess my last question would be about parents. Now you were 19, so you didn't need parental consent, but mm -mm. what should parents do if they have a child like you who they, if they're familiar with the research and realize that you're not the cohort for whom such medical interventions were intended, and they understand that you're going through much more than just gender issues, what mm -hmm. should they do? Well, that's going to sound harsh, but the peer influence and the peer pressure is real. And I think the only thing that, and you're also taught to vilify your parents. If they raise questions, if they say, hey, I've known you your whole life. I don't think this is you. You didn't show any signs of this as a, as a child. They're transphobic is the rhetoric, is what we're taught. And I really internalized that um, when I was young. And I'm not sure there's much my parents could have said that would have made me um, listen to them. I, I do wish that they had pushed back. I wish that they had pushed back and not affirmed, but my mom was talking to me about this recently and she said, well, we were worried you were going to kill yourself because that's the other thing you hear. If you don't affirm your child immediately, they're going to kill themselves. Studies show, <laughs> uh, studies show that 
the people who transition, the sense of satisfaction goes up to a certain point, certain number of years after, and then the rates of suicide are the same, if not greater. Um, I, I don't know exactly what it was, and I don't want to put more false data out there, but that is a study that we can find. Um, so I know my parents were acting out of fear that I would kill myself because that's what we were all told. Heck, I even internalized that. Um, and if I had a kid now, so I think about this a lot because I'm at the age where I'm starting to think about kids. My partner and I are, you know, that that's the next thing that I'm doing with my life. And I don't know what I would do if I had, I'm scared of it. I am actively afraid of it. I'm, I'm looking into homeschooling. I'm looking into religious schools. I'm looking into trying to set my kid up for an ideal environment to not encounter gender ideology, but the internet exists. Oh, I also don't want to give them phones till they're at least 13. I say that now. I know once you have kids, it's, it's hard and it's, you give them a tablet because, you know, um, but if my kid came home and said, Hey, like, I think I have a gender. <laughs> oh God. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to I w- the thing that would have worked for me is taking away my access to my peer group, taking away my access to, to I would take them out of that school. I would t- get rid of their social media. I would, you know, I don't know how I would do this without, I mean, the goal is to, I don't know, we would move. Like, honestly, I, I, that's, all, that's also very like an emotional response on my part. But I also think that's the only thing that would have helped me. The only thing that would have deprogrammed me because I was programmed by this cult, basically, um, would be to cut off my access to the cult. So it's not an easy, there's not an easy answer. But I also think if my parents had been gender critical and had taught me growing up, hey, there's this thing out there. This is what they say it is, but it's not what they say it is. Um, And if I'd been taught to be critical from the beginning, I think things would have been different. But we didn't know that this was something we'd have to look out for. Yeah. Well, Emma, as we're calling you, I, I am so grateful to you for sharing this story with me. I'm sorry for what happened to you. And I hope that hearing your story will help others. Me too. Thank you for letting me have this opportunity to share it. Thank you.